everyone to the next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications that are relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your host, Patrick Egan, and as always, let's say hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Mr. Egan. I certainly hope you enjoyed your little vacation there while I was holding down the fort. Well, yeah, you know, it's uh, I like to get you know, sneak something in once every three or four years, you know, <laughs> Drink a little R&R, you know, makes that uh, makes things better. And it kind of goes along. I took Mrs. Drone Dealer on vacation and I have this little maxim and you've probably heard it before, but too much drone and your marriage could become unmanned. So, you know, remember that. <laughs> love it. I love it. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's happened to a lot of guys, so you know. And I've come, uh, I've got skin in my teeth, did a couple of times. But you know, you got to know when to <laughs> when to play catch up. So it was good. Had a good time, uh, you know. And uh, but I'm back and better than ever. And, um, and we got a great show today. You know, some more experts. And as far as I'm concerned, you can never have too many experts. But. Um, you know, uh, any as we always say here, uh, you know, or start to show off, any any news stories catch your attention this week, Gene? Well, there, there's been while you were gone, I've, I've been doing what I usually do. I've been in Pascagoula, Mississippi, working with some folks down there in the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, looking for a, a downed airplane, and uh, you know, it, it just never stops. There always seems to be that that need for you know the aerial imagery and the the drone support that we can provide and I'm happy to say I did it legally that was just you know it was such a joy to be able to say I've got a 333 and I'm going to go do this under RP search services and nobody said a word even talked to uh, Tracon and those folks up there and they were like yeah hey knock your lights out and uh, it just made it a little easier on the sticks you know well it's probably you know it's been a few years right I mean, because, you know, that's another thing. i got to remind people all the time that, no, you know, this drone thing was legal prior to 2007. We're, you know, so remember remember the good old, good old days when you were doing it OG styling and you were, you were all legal and you were playing around. You remember that? God, you just, you know, whip it out and, and go for it. So, uh, yeah, I remember that, and it just seems like a distant memory, but uh, – yeah, and it's still probably going to be a distant memory too, huh? It pr- probably, but it used to be in the, the good old days when you used to be able to fly unfettered. And, and we working with the FAA together, stakeholders, arm in arm. It was like the sound of music singing on the mountain. Okay, anyway, it's another story. <laughs> it wasn't quite that good, but it was nice. <laughs> no, uh, it was, so no, it wasn't. We're coming back around to that. Today's show is going to be great, though. We've got, uh, you know, more subject matter experts uh, on here. We're going to talk about the registration thing uh, with Terry Miller from Unmanned Risk. We're going to talk about uh, some scientific studies with uh, Mr. Holsey Smith from Aerokinetics. It's going to be great. But I want to talk about registration first. We've got Terry Miller on here, like I said, from Unmanned Risk. Terry, could you please give the audience short bio on how you got here and how you got uh, mixed up with these drones. Hi, Patrick. You bet. Thank you for for having me. First of all, uh, we uh, transport risk management and unmanned risk started uh, 
started writing drones about five years ago. My background is uh, about 25 years as an aviation insurance and risk management uh, specialist, uh, and and we we're, we're an insurance broker that uh, is heavily involved in the aerial film production industry. About five years ago, a lot of our film uh, production companies wanted to start using drones. We thought it was a great idea because it makes a lot more sense to have a small unmanned aircraft over Central Park or, or flying down Water Street in New York than it does a manned helicopter. And so we uh, we had to find a way to, to get that done. So we went to our underwriters who have supported us, uh, given us a tremendous amount of support. Uh, started off with one underwriter five years ago. Today we have, we have more than ten. We're insuring... More than 3,000 drones worldwide for every imaginable use, and we continue to uh, continue to insure them at the rate of about six new ones a day here at Transport Risk Management. So we see a bright future in the industry. You're killing it. You're killing it. And then when I had you on hold, you told me you were out there in the uh, Walmart parking lot and you just bought your first drone. We're, <laughs> we we happen to insure the warehouse where 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 a lot of those drones are sitting right now, waiting for distribution and sales over the holidays. And I can confirm the there's a lot of them. Is it it the is Pole? very close by to the North Pole. Close by. Yes. All right. Well, you know, we wanted to uh, we wanted to have you on here because one of the big topics today we were going to talk about drone registration, and we've uh, made some comments about this and back and forth and all the rest of that. You and I seem to be on the same page. Um, the only thing is, is you know, and you did bring this to my attention because I was on vacation. But it looks like the deadline they're gonna we're gonna roll this out tomorrow. Which in my mind, I was kind of like, hey, this shows, you know, they they're rolling up the sleeves. They got some private sector kind of, you know, initiative going here, and I'm all kind of excited. Anybody else have any thoughts on Saturday? Okay, so you guys, everybody else wants a Christmas card from the FAA besides me. That's. <laughs> I was speechless there for a minute. I didn't know what you were alluding to there, Patrick. <laughs> Well, we were, you know, the whole industry really, you know, we've been we've been we've been dealing with registration here in the insurance industry for four or five years. Uh, it didn't exist when it first started, and today a big problem still is that aircraft don't just don't are either home built, amateur built, as you know, per, per the FAA's definition. So we had to invent our own registration system years and years ago. Uh, so we're we're we're. Yeah, we're excited. We were waiting for today when the announcement was supposed to we were supposed to disclose the recommendations of the task force, and uh, then we saw uh, Secretary Huerta's uh, post on the FAA's website, and there's not just one sentence in there that says that it's actually not going to be delivered today, but they expect it to be delivered tomorrow. So it seems unusual to have it delivered on a Saturday, but... Uh, you know, missing the deadline by one day isn't that bad, all things considered. No, it's not. You know what I would do if I were you? Oh, go ahead, Gene. Sorry. Well, they, they've made a couple of announcements on Sunday, if you'll recall. They, you know, pulled some things out that, you know, we were, like, scratching our heads. They did it Sunday before the holiday. I, I think one time they were made an announcement. Uh, it, it was really odd. So, you know, odd timing out of those guys is nothing new. Keeps it, you know, keeps it interesting. Now, if I were you, Terry, what I would do since they didn't, you know, announce it today, I'd just take the rest of the day off and go scan. 
Well, you know, it's snowing pretty hard here in the mountains of Colorado, and I'm heading that direction to watch uh, to watch the French women's ski team train this weekend, and possibly even film them with a the drone. Wow, well, that sounds interesting. A little bit more interesting than waiting for the registration scheme. An insured yeah. drone, yeah. An insured drone, yes. So the um, here I am, you know, I had made comments for the R Kappa or on behalf of the membership of the R Kappa, and and I had contended to the FAA that I, I didn't understand what the urgency was because in my mind a registration um, scheme already exists, and we did talk about that a little bit, and you did uh, you gave me a link, you fired off a link, but maybe you could talk about that because, I mean, you you have to have some sort of way of tracking, let's say. Uh, insured aircraft, correct? The insurance industry has to, we have to meet a couple of different standards. Number one, we have to, we have to be able to identify the aircraft we're actually insuring. So we had to come up with a system that, that could do that, and that's a label. And it's, it's a numbering system that, that can also, if it, if, uh, I use the extreme, if one comes through your window, if we insure it, it's gonna have, uh, it's gonna have a data plate affixed to it with a number and our phone number and our name. Says, call us. We'll be able to identify who the owner is. We'll be able to tell exactly what that aircraft is. So we have to, because the aircraft are scheduled to the policy, we have to be able to determine specifically which aircraft we're insuring. And that was that that that's that's difficult. A lot easier said than done. A lot of times, because most uh, amateur built don't have serial numbers. So, and how we do that is is they have to verify. Uh, you know what it's what it's what it, what the composition of the aircraft, and they do that through sending us all of the invoices or a bill of sale, exactly what's required of every other aircraft that's registered, exactly what the FAA requires. The second criteria, so we have to verify er, uh, insurable interest, which is ownership. You have to prove to us that you own it, that you, even if you built it, you have to show us that the components are in your name, you have a bill of sale, something like that. Third is that we have to somehow figure out whether there's a lien holder or a third party with, a, with interest in, in the asset as well, just like you have a loan on your car. Uh, so we can't, it's very difficult for us to pay a claim unless we can verify that. So here at Transport Risk Management, we had to develop a system years ago to do that. Uh, if our aircraft are out there, you can verify coverage. We can verify whether it's coverage, covered. Every aircraft that we insure, we know exactly what that aircraft is, who's operating it, where it's being operated, and what the uses are. We can also tell you every component that should be on that aircraft. And when a claim happens, when we show up, we scan the barcode, it goes to our system, it prints off a, a list of components or an inventory or a bill of sale. We can verify to the adjuster that that's, in fact, the aircraft. And that's not magic. That is uh, the aircraft registry. There, The FAA has a page posted. I'm looking at it right now. It says aircraft registration, unmanned aircraft. Registration is required for all unmanned aircraft operated for non-hobby or, hobby or recreational uses. And then it lists, uh, there's a whole list of criteria. And that's almost exactly, except for the citizenship requirement, everything that we follow. So, yes, there is a, there's already a procedure in place for, for not only unmanned, but also amateur built unmanned. 
and it's very easy to read. It's on a single page, and and you just follow follow the directions, and you can go out and register your aircraft. There are thousands registered already with N numbers flying, so it's possible. And if you have a 333 exemption, actually, I think you have to have an N number. So if we have 2,500 or 28 exemptions out there, then we have thousands of aircraft. Uh, that that already have end numbers or at least required to. So, yes, the system the system's there. It's been there for a long time, and there's even one there for unmanned aircraft. Well, let me just I wanted to get Gene to pipe in here because I know Gene's a three thirty three holder. Yes, Gene, do you your aircraft have end numbers, right? Yes, they do. I went and uh, I I reserved six end numbers, and it was a very easy process and. You know, I think it's kind of interesting that uh, the FAA made a comment, you know, right off the, the bat that, oh, you don't need to hire anyone to get an N number for you, which is true. It's a really easy process. You can reserve it, and then, you know, once you do the paperwork and get the, the, the I, I dotted and the T's crossed, you can get it applied to just about any aircraft you own, including the drone. Uh, okay. You well. know, the, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just kind of going to say. I was just going to say that you know the the same thing really applied to the 333 as well. And uh, there there were a lot of folks that jumped on the 333 bandwagon and started offering it as a service when, in actuality, it was not that difficult to do. Um, I mean, heck, we we wrote an exemption two two three years ago that uh, floated around in the. Uh, uh, Air 160 for a while, and we had to to cancel that one because it was too far ahead of our time before we got our 333. But I mean, we still did it, uh, and we didn't contact a single lawyer, and it was uh, just you know following the forms. Well, <clears throat> interesting, but okay. So uh, you know, I wanted to kind of wrap this up and bring on our second guest, but let's just. Okay, so, you know, we're looking at the FAA page here, and I got this pulled up, and the registration for aircraft and home build already exists, and, you know, I think well, there's like a carbon copy thing, and there's a notary public and, and things like that, and there are other stipulations. you got to be a citizen, and so, I mean, there's a lot of problems there, but uh, do you think this is over going to overlay on the Walmart and the Best Buy and the... You know, Brookstone at the airport and all the rest of this, this uh, the aircraft registration deal, and I'll ask Terry first your thoughts on that. What What is the question? I'm sorry. Well, how does uh, aircraft registration that already exists would, would work at Best Buy and Walmart and Brookstone at the airport? You know, I'm going to go in there and buy my drone, and I get to register my aircraft. Do you, do you think that's going to go smoothly or clunky? I think I, I think it's going to be necessarily clunky. One is is you know Huerta versus versus Trappy. Be careful with or, or Perker. Be, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. That 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 oh, yeah. defined unmanned aircraft as aircraft. And there's a there's a great big book that I'm an Embry Riddle Aeronautical University graduate and Aviation Business Administration Action Investigation. We had to read it the first year I was in Embry Riddle. It's uh, the rules exist for aircraft. And second, an aircraft. You know, I don't I don't know how you define. If you buy one at Walmart, for example, is it uh, is it an aircraft because it can fly, or is it an aircraft once it enters the NAS? What if it never enters the NAS? Should it be registered? Second, how do you deregister it? Uh, we've seen some some ideas that it's just going to be applied to to an operator and not to each aircraft. But then how do, how does 
how does that work? How do you define how many aircraft are out there? As far as our, we're concerned, we still have to follow the same registration procedure internally if that's the case because we have to identify each and every aircraft that we insure. So I, I think defining whether it's going to fly or if it's an aircraft because it can fly or if it's an aircraft because it is flying are two big distinctions, number one. Number two, I think that because there already are rules that exist, uh, that they're going to have compliance issues, and I think they stand uh, a tremendous amount of pushback you know, from a number of different areas, namely those that have already gone through this process. But that sounds great, and I can appreciate all that. But I want to just know, so does my hall closet in my house now, you know, magically, is that is that really an aircraft hangar? <laughs> that is that's precisely the question. At what point do they become an aircraft, when they're in the NAS or, or when they're when they roll off the production line? Exactly. All right. Well, that's. I mean, those are some good things to think about. Uh, Gene, did you have any closing thoughts on that subject? No, I, that was pretty funny. I like that though. Uh, yeah. The 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 question is is what is is at this point uh, an aircraft? I think that could, that's a slippery slope. So we're going to move on to our next topic and our, our next guest. I mean, Terry, you're you're uh, welcome to stay on because I think that this will also. I will watch the snowfall and listen in. This is this is obviously very interesting to us because we we insure uh, well over five thousand manned aircraft here as well. All right, so this this is right in your uh, right in your neck of the woods. So our next guest is uh, W. Holsey Smith from Aerokinetics. And uh, Mr. Smith, could you please come on and tell us a little about your background and how you became involved with this this drone study? Sure, I uh, appreciate you having me on today, Patrick. Uh, we we have been in the aerospace and defense industry since since 2003, mostly in the manned aircraft space. Uh, we have uh, maintenance operations, aircraft operations, special missions operations, and uh, various uh, engineering certification uh, groups that we uh, we operate. Yeah, about three years ago, we were approached by a Fortune 100 client uh, to develop an unmanned aircraft uh, that could be deployed anywhere in the NAS. And we went down that process to, to work with the FAA in the uh, certification process to figure out the best strategy to ensure we could have safe operations for the public. And as we moved through that process with the FAA and, and with the public, we watched the proliferation of the uh, toy drones which are, are not unmanned aircraft. I mean, technically, by the FAA's definition, they are. And I think from your last segment, you were just discussing that, is that sometimes your hall closet can become a hangar relative to the FAA's definition. And from our perspective, uh, we, we don't really see that as a fundamental issue. What we see as a fundamental issue and with the reason for our study is that until we recognize the dangers that toy drones pose to manned aircraft and innocence on the ground, we can't have an honest conversation about how we're going to go about solving that challenge. And so that is really uh, the reason why we've got this study and why we uh, have spent the last six months working on it and developing it uh, to produce the first scientific study that demonstrates the danger that toy drones really do pose uh, in, in the national airspace system. All right. Well, we're on the same page. You know, I mean, there's, there's been a little bit of stir about your your study, but then we'll get into that. But we're on the same page. I, I've been saying for years. I mean, if you can't, and, I, and I've been asking the FAA this question since, I don't know, probably 2006, is where's the data? 
if you don't, you know, if we don't have any data, then basically what we're we're talking about are feelings, and we don't know what the risk is to the NAS or the people on the ground, and we may be overregulating or underregulating, you know, staying objective. We may be underregulating. You know, maybe a big problem here. When I've asked the FAA, I said, you know, where, where's the hazard? Where's the data? They've had none. I, mean, I really, you know, I've been at this, this this whole drone thing's actually been going on for 23, 25 years. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but anyway, this has been going yes, on. And, and we've been, you know, kind of trudging through the swamp here with no data whatsoever that, that talks about any risks uh, to the NASA people on the ground. And so I've said from the drone side, hey, we've we got to do some science here. There is some apprehension from the drone community, you know, and, and rightfully so. People are a little afraid that their product may uh, cause a risk or whatever, but there's different ways that you have to go about mitigating those risks. But first, we've got to determine the risk. So I agree with you. So we've, that, that was the, the impetus for your study was to say, for, uh, hey, let, let's establish a baseline for the risk, or was it it's something where uh, you were you were looking for maybe a cutoff with the different sizes? What what was it? So really, the the focus of our study is to demonstrate that the risk is substantial, and and then enter into an honest debate about how best to regulate, uh, you know, all various types of unmanned uh, vehicles you know, airborne vehicles, okay? And from that approach, I, I want to give a lot of credit to the FAA in this, in this respect. You know, we're working with the Pathfinder program, and, I, and so many times I see the FAA getting thumbed in the eye for not embracing, you know, this technology. And, and I can say from our experience, we have uh, some of the best and brightest of the FAA working in conjunction with us and others uh, to, to really tackle this issue, and they're technologists, they're embracing the speed of technology, and they're working as quickly as they can to put in place a set of regulations that are effective for providing for public safety. If you look at, you know, really specifically the challenges that, that we all face in the industry, and, and probably to answer your question, you know, what is the, the purpose of the study? How did, how did, what do we hope to come from this study? Is that the FAA needs additional data points. They need people such as Aerokinetics and others, you know, even on this call, uh, to be able to put this uh, challenge into perspective, provide them with data sets relative to potential issues so that they can better draft regulation to pinpoint exactly where it needs to be under a balanced approach. And so that's been our approach with this. That's what the study is about. If you look at our, our solution section uh, in the end of the study, we suggest uh, conducting additional research, uh, working in conjunction with the manned aircraft uh, manufacturers, uh, and, and working together with industry at large uh, to, to really evaluate uh, how great these dangers are in a live testing scenario. We believe that you need to have significant public education. You know, uh, fly responsibly. You know, is very important, uh, and we believe that you have to still provide for uh, recreational and hobbyist uh, flights. Of, of toy drones. You, you can't, and this is America, we can't say that you cannot fly a hobbyist toy drone. We just need to establish a means with which people can do that uh, safely and effectively inside the national airspace system. And then the, the real issue here, Patrick, and something that I think all too often is glossed over, and it's been pushed upon by the toy manufacturers that are out there, is that Section 333 and proposed Part 107 both exclude any sort of airworthiness certification. 
underneath Section 333 and Part 107 as originally drafted, the operator of the unmanned system is self-certifying that that aircraft is airworthy. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm not certain that I know very many people who have the expertise level that maybe we have on in, at this, in this interview to be able to make determinations as to whether an aircraft is airworthy when they're buying these systems, these toys at places like Sam's Club and Walmart and Brookstone. So when you evaluate that from an insurance perspective, there's a huge economic authority gap that exists that doesn't provide for the public safety. So that's a whole other well, part of this study that we're, we wanted to highlight. I, okay, I, one of the let, things I'm that... Let Gene, go ahead, Gene, jump in there. Yeah, one of, one of the things that, that I have, uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, you keep saying toy drone. That adjective there was the same adjective, essentially, that was in front of aircraft for the longest time. It had model aircraft. Right, and we we've now gone away. That that definition has been changed to just be aircraft, and it sounds like somebody's mixing a martini back there. But oh, uh, no, was, you know, you, that's me. <laughs> Terry's going skiing. Okay, I'm but, drinking but a martini. You keep, you keep saying toy drone, and I, I think that's a conundrum that that we need to kind of move away from because how do you qualify a toy drone versus uh, professional drone. Uh, there, there are manufacturers that uh, could go either way on this one. Sure. If you evaluate our study, we, we specifically define toy drone versus uh, an unmanned aircraft system or UAS. And, and this is a debate uh, yeah. that needs to occur. So from, from our perspective, a toy drone is an aerial vehicle that is not designed with any of the generally accepted aerospace grade engineering and design principles, okay? And a toy drone is not fitted with aerospace grade avionics systems, even at the most minimal level, okay? So that is how we classify a toy drone relative to an unmanned aircraft system. So when you look at that definition of a toy drone, if you can't communicate with other aircraft, you don't have a radio communications package, and you don't have any sort of transponder, ADSB in and out or capability, and you don't have any other basic uh, avionics packages that would be acceptable by an aerospace-grade standard, even at the most nominal level, to us, that is considered a toy drone. And that is really where the largest area of risk is inside of the national airspace system. And, and I think it's cool. very important to draw that definition. Okay, and, and let's. I'm just going to try to round the definition out a little bit. So, right now, what about you know weight uh, on that? I mean, that, that you're, you're talking. I mean, in my mind, what you just described is it's going to be like huge uh, portion of the people that are already out there flying drones. Is, is there a weight cutoff? And then I want to get Terry in here. But is there? Have you thought about weight and the kinetic energy thing? Sure. So as we evaluated the risk structure uh, with weight, uh, there's two factors, obviously, in kinetic energy in these impact studies, uh, velocity and, and mass. And so uh, weight is definitely a contributing factor. From our perspective, uh, you know, we, we didn't consider a cutoff weight uh, as a study. That was, wasn't really the purpose of it. Um, but certainly, if you evaluate, you know, sub 55 pounds, I think that that would be uh, effective. But uh, again, I'd have to consider that further before I can give you a definitive answer, Patrick. 
Okay, that's good. And then, uh, Terry, I mean, so, you know, Terry here is our, you know, if you uh, were in on the first part of the conversation, Terry's insuring about 3,000 um, UAS here. So, Terry, uh, from your perspective and the definition, do you, do you, what, what would you say about that? I mean, that, what, what are you insuring? Uh, today we're insuring everything from phantoms to pilot optional turbines. And, you know, we're... Yeah, we we're so so that's that's and we we just consider all of those to fit the definition of of uh, of a UAS and we insure them all on similar policy forms and and provide extend the same same coverages same as we do from a uh, you know from a home built uh, amateur built air a manned aircraft up to a seven you know forty seven essentially the same policy forms we underwrite them the same way and and uh you know treat them the same way the same same breadth of coverages yeah but i mean the percentage of, of stuff that you know the larger percentage of the stuff that you're insuring um not having like this the the, AV, the, the grade that he was talking about the avionics and whatnot there the, yeah the vast majority not as uh, 90 percent plus and ninety one, ninety two percent are are you know in the small UAS, uh, mm-hmm. ready to fly or home built. And you know, airworthiness was a was a concern for us as well. There's no way to determine airworthiness or not, so we base it on loss ratios and what we're comfortable insuring today. And five years worth and thousands of drones, we've you know we're not uncomfortable with with what we've been able to determine. We work with robotic skies in areas where we have questions and. And other partners like Skyward and and uh, you know we we're you know learning as we go. Right. So I have a question for you, real quick. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump in here. What what limits sure. of liability are you offering, and are you doing that underneath a CGL policy form or a true there are aircraft two different liability policy, forms policy in aviation? Form. One is an aircraft policy form that covers aircraft operations. Manufacturers yes, are under a CGL. Ours are under aviation aircraft policy forms with 15 carriers worldwide. We go up to 500 million liability. We insure drones right now, small S DJI S1000s with 100 million on them. Impressive. And and one of the things that uh, uh, you know, I've, I've read through your your report uh, with, with great interest when it came out, and. The, from what I read, you took the bird impact study and you just did a mathematical extrapolation into uh, the energy transference. Is this correct? Uh, generally, that's correct. So there, there's that. That's a, a very baseline summary. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I'm just trying to understand that because we also looked into years ago the frangibility uh, of the aircraft as well. Because I, I can, you know, I, I know from the bird strike study, they were surprised at how that that soft sack of goo could stay together and go as far as it could go. Well, there's a lot of elasticity there. I, I'm getting kind of geeky on you here, but uh, you know, with uh, w- with a lot of plastic and and composites and stuff like that, rather than staying together, they come apart. And and I think that's probably going to change maybe the way some of this stuff works because when you do when you actually get down to actually, you know, firing that that DJI at a windshield, uh, you know, you're going to get uh, maybe see a little different uh, results as that thing comes apart on impact at that speed. 
Absolutely. We've done modeling on that. Uh, the reason why we didn't include that in the study is that uh, as a, a toy drone comes apart, so take, for example, the motor uh, attached to uh, a DJI, uh, as it separates from the, the airframe from the arm, okay, it turns into a projectile and maintains a very high velocity, which is exponential in the overall calculation of the kinetic energy. So effectively, uh, as it breaks apart, you could imagine it being more of a shrapnel hitting an, an aircraft component as opposed to a bird, which would, uh, you know, it's kind of morbid to think about, but it would spread out and increase the overall surface area. So the modulus of elasticity is what you're mentioning, and that specific factor is something that we addressed uh, in the report, but we, we did not include it because it actually served to increase the overall dangers of the report, and we didn't feel that it was appropriate to include that without uh, significant additional research uh, and sure. calculations uh, to do that, and we wanted to make sure we had a, a conservative and defensible position. Yes, sir. That's understood. Yeah, uh, well, one of the other questions that I had is, you know, is we did we actually do real-world kinetic energy tests? And, and you have to excuse me. I'm a little bit of a late to the party. I was on vacation. But I did see this story, and as you know, we tried to put something together quick. So there were, there were, there were actually like no real-world tests, or were there some real-world tests? Well, we would have loved to have done real-world testing, but I couldn't get my board of directors to approve a multimillion-dollar budget to launch toy drones and manned aircraft. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> well, I guess it's better than firing frozen chickens. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we, we hope to do that. Uh, we're working with several, uh, you know, aircraft manufacturers uh, to, uh, to evaluate uh, that potential possibility. And uh, we, we'd love to develop a consortium to do real-world live testing with high-speed cameras to better understand the overall effects. And we think that would be uh, phase two of this type of a study. So there are, there, there are plans to, to follow up on the work that's already been completed. Absolutely. I mean, as a, an aircraft manufacturer, uh, we need to continue to better understand these challenges and risks going forward so that we can bake in as much safety as possible into our overall design structure, and that's part of our R&D efforts on a go-forward basis. So, and, and in the beginning of the uh, <clears throat> of this segment, segment two, you were talking about how you were approached by a Fortune 100 company, and they wanted you to uh, come up with something or develop something that could be flown in the NAS. Is that Did I get that correctly? Yes, that is correct. And so, have you developed this this uh, unicorn? We have. Uh, we've developed the unicorn. Uh, we actually uh, <laughs> deployed some of them in early uh, last year, and then uh, are continuing this process uh, going through uh, the type certification efforts. Uh, today, we're we're slated to achieve type certification for our three variant systems: uh, the Little Bear, Big Bear, and Apollo variants. Uh, which are on our website, uh, www.aerokinetics.com. And with those three different variants, we can fly in the urban environments, uh, which is specifically where Little Bear is designed to perform the best. Then we also have Big Bear, which is uh, a medium lifter using ducted propulsors uh, that provides greater opportunity uh, to meet more industrial challenges and in, in flight uh, mission kit profiles. And then Apollo is an open rotor system 
designed to be flown in remote and industrial sites uh, as a true heavy lift, uh, long endurance, uh, multi-rotor aircraft. And, and that's the, the approach that we have as a, as a business. Ironically, we are sensor and cargo agnostic. So as we, we look at our design schema, we, we don't care what type of a sensor a customer wants to operate or what type of cargo they need to transport. Uh, we want to make sure that our system is adaptable for all of them. So we use a lot of hard point design systems uh, to be able to make those flexible. And we have a very robust uh, communication links and data transmission links that allow us to move data in real time effectively anywhere in the world, uh, you know, with a reasonable delay so that, you know, business leaders have the actual business intelligence they need to make real world decisions. Yeah, no, I like. I'm, I'm looking at the uh, the little bear now, um, and I like the. Uh, you know, you got your prop guards on there. Looks like we're thinking about some safety and this Fortune 100 company that you were talking about. You don't have to name any names, but would they move freight on rails? <laughs> uh, uh, no, sir. Uh, they, uh, that that particular customer is is not one of on our current roster. Uh, we we love what they're doing. Uh, we follow them very closely and, and have had some interaction there, uh, but uh, they, they have a, a definite need, and uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, potentially working with them in the future and, and hope we can uh, can do so. Now let me ask you another question. So, you know, and this is another thing, you know, you guys are talking about toy drones, and I think this is another, uh, let's say, you know, separates the men from the boys, and it sounds like you guys are going for, you know, like a aviation-grade system, can you give us a ballpark of what the Little Bear uh, retails for? Sure. So that goes to our business model. We don't believe, so our customers are not the onesie twosie, you know, uh, unmanned system operators. Our customers are large, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, you know, multinational corporations who are looking for a, a total solution to deploying unmanned aircraft inside their day-to-day business operations. So as we look at that approach, our customers are not looking for one or two systems. You know, one of them is looking for 4,300 units across the United States over the next two years. And they need maintenance support. They need connectivity, integration, uh, training, the, the, an entire solution structure. So when you start looking at the, the sales process, we have some published pricing uh, on our website. Uh, for one and two off you know, customers who want to acquire these systems. But typically, most all of our clients choose to lease them as a full-service solution, and at leases start as low as $4,000 a month turnkey, including uh, maintenance and service contracts, and uh, as well as a rotable spare. So, for example, we all know that if you're flying in an area and you're working with a customer or a client or you have a, a critical mission, and you do have a, a unmanned aircraft that needs maintenance or service or somehow needs to be repaired, it, it often can take time. So we provide rotable spare systems to our clients uh, for those type situations so they can maintain uh, dispatch reliability. Two is one and one is done. And you guys are down there in Fort Worth, Texas. Gene's also <clears throat> in Texas. Have you, have you met Gene? We didn't really get to meet Gene Robinson, but Gene's been doing uh, search and rescue now for, what, 10 years, Gene, with these things? Yeah, 11 years, something like that. A little while. All right. Well, I mean, that's yeah, pretty interesting. Years. I like the uh, I like the design. looks like uh, things are kind of safe there. I like where you guys are kind of going on that. Um, and you're going to follow up with the studies. I haven't 
I, I really haven't heard of you guys. Like I say, in the ecosystem, have you been going to any of the uh, the unmanned, let's say, symposiums? Have you kind of? That's not really your crowd. It sounds like you're trying to market to kind of more like fleet sales. Yes. Yes. So we, we do go to the shows. We were at AUVSI this year. We typically don't uh, exhibit at, uh, you know, industry trade shows, such as for the unmanned systems industry. We exhibit at customer shows, and that's been, uh, you know, better for us uh, going forward. We love going to the industry shows. They're great, uh, and there's a lot of great people there. Uh, speaking, I just wrapped up uh, giving a keynote presentation at the third Additive Aerospace Conference in Los Angeles uh, back in late October, and then uh, doing also another conference, uh, the Unmanned Systems Institute conference in uh, in uh, San Diego, uh, the I think 13th through the 16th of uh, December. Uh, looking forward to being there as well and, and doing those. And then next year we do have quite a, a, a an aggressive show schedule. And I look forward to, to meeting all of you in person, face to face, and continuing these conversations. Well, that sounds good. Uh, so let me just uh, hand it over to Gene. Anything in the uh, in closing, Gene, that you'd like to add? No, I, I've got to tell you, I, since I was a, a NIST pilot and did all the fire research and all that flying on manned aircraft, i got to tell you, I really like the science part of it. And that, that's why I kind of went geeky on you there. Sorry about that. But uh, I'm really looking forward to see what happens when, you know, you really start that research in earnest. And I think that's going to be pivotal. I think it's going to be very key to collect that data and put it into something that's tangible and we can rely on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'd like Thank you for, for that. I'd like to, uh, you know, I think it's a good thing. Like I said, you know, I've been really, uh, for the last couple of years, really pushing the uh, the unmanned aircraft industry to do some science, put up the money, say, hey, here's, here the, here's the risk. This is objective. Please come and, and disprove our um, findings. Um, I think we need to do that. I mean, I don't know. I go to these these shows, and you get people from the big, you know, the Googles, the Amazons, and the Facebook saying it's safe because we said so. I don't. I don't think anyone's buying that. Got to come up with some real science. Then we can go in and sell this to to Congress and the regulator and everything else. Uh, Terry, would you like? Did you have anything you'd like to add in closing? Uh, no, I just appreciate being here. I thought this was very interesting. As a matter of fact, the uh, the business model that, that was just described, the most successful uh, manufacturer business model that we ensure today is almost exactly that. Uh, that, that we put together a leasing program, and it's almost a, an aviation version, an unmanned version of ACMI. Uh, mm -hmm. except that it just goes out leasing, includes training, maintenance, and it's worked extremely well. A couple hundred aircraft on that fleet, I believe. So, And and the research here is important, too. I mean, turbine engines have incredibly tight tolerances, and an uncontained loss is disastrous. And, and you know, it's it's certainly possible that that could occur with, with, with one of these small UAS. And that's obviously of interest to us because we could be insuring both of them at the same time. We'd like to avoid that at all costs. <laughs> Uh, here and did you give me your, your website address, Mr. Miller? Uh, it's unmannedrisk.com, just just like it's spelled, or transportrisk.com is our manned uh, is our man site. All right, and we look forward to hearing your uh, presentation at this year's Small Unmanned Systems Business Exposition. 
San Francisco in April. With that, I'm going to say uh, goodbye to everyone. Thanks for being on, and uh, until next time, uh, you know, keep it safe. Thank you very much. Have a good holiday. Thanks, Patrick. Have a good holiday. No problem. Cheers.